This episode is sponsored by the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, a contractor to the Beef Checkoff. For more information, please visit beefitswhatsfordinner.com. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Inside the New Plastics Economy, Global Commitment, Why Glass Recycling is Still a Challenge, a conversation with one of our emerging leaders, and a columnist asks, deforestation, when should I panic? We're up a tree this week on 350. It's November 2nd, 2018. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me as always from the beautiful Garden State is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Good day, Heather. Good day. It's the spooky edition of <laughs> Yeah, we're, yep. <laughs> we're recording this on, on Halloween and uh, um, you let the black cat out of the bag there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, uh, yeah, we're in fact uh, uh, having a fun little costume party here at the Green Biz headquarters in Oakland today uh, for Halloween. And, you know, people do their thing. Maybe we'll post, post a picture or two on that, but I'm sure someone's Twitter feed already has that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a little bit of a bittersweet week here at Green Biz because one of our uh, treasured, valued colleagues is... Um, Moving on after this week, um, Elaine Shea, the Verge program director, announced in the newsletter that went out on Wednesday that she is, uh, this is her last week, and she's going to be uh, moving on to the next great adventure, and it's, it's, it's a little bit sad. Uh, it's more than a little bit sad. Uh, Elaine has been with us for five and a half years. She is as responsible for, as anyone, for having built the Verge franchise within Green Biz, uh, the great event that we had a couple weeks ago, and many others, including the three that we did in Hawaii. And um, she is going to be missed. Say it isn't so, Elaine. Come on. <laughs> uh, yes, absolutely. Elaine has taught me much about how to be on video. She's uh, amazing as the host of the virtual, Verge Virtual program. Um, and I've, I've spent many hours aside beside her on on video on camera and have learned a lot from her on packaging great content she's she's had so many wonderful gets as far as the main stage goes and i'm going to miss her miss her much as well as i'm her little behind the scenes editor so i'm i'm going to miss you elaine well um yeah so here's here's to elaine shea uh bridge program director um thank you for everything and moving on, um, I'm going to see you next week. You will. We will be together again uh, in, in New York City at the BSR conference. I have to get my arms around um, which sessions I'm attending, but I'm always excited when, when this event makes its way to the East Coast because it's, um, it's a good sort of reset button for me um, as far as the issues to think about for the coming year. Yeah, every even-numbered year. In fact, I have <laughs> the only election... 
that I've spent at home was actually the last one, 2016. But up to that, since the 90s, I've been at the BSR conference in New York, as I will be uh, next week. So uh, watching the election from someone else's TV and and maybe even in Times Square, depending on how good I'm feeling about the results. Uh, but it's definitely going to be an interesting week on many levels. And, and I always like the BSR conference because, as, as you said, it, you call it a refresh. And it does um, get us out of our strictly environmental cocoon uh, into some of the other topics that are, that are adjacent and very much interconnected around human rights and labor issues and, and women's empowerment and community economic development human rights, and, and, and a bunch of other issues that it's just really good to see. And, and increasingly, what I think is interesting, and I always look forward to, um, for my own edification at BSR, is th these things used to be separate. There was the human rights track and the environment track and the women's empowerment track, and, and they, they may still do that. I don't remember how it's set up, but they, were, they didn't really cross-index very much. And now these things are much more uh, interconnected and blended, and the, the, the lines of demarcation are very, very blurry. And it really does help us see how the traditionally environmental sustainability world that we've been a part of interconnects with so many of these other issues. It was there before, but it's it's much more evident now because the the walls inside uh, companies around these things have also fallen down and so there's a lot more holistic thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the the whole uh, a sustainable organization is only as sustainable as as its humans, right? Too within it. And so that's where that plays into and I I I appreciate that sort of broader lens as well because um, you can be cocooned and, and sidetracked into one little area. And it, this does make me think more broadly. And also the interconnections are just unbelievably uh, fascinating and interwoven. So, And here we go talking about next week. And we haven't even yet covered the <laughs> week in review. So we have to start this week with uh, a piece that our colleague uh, Lauren Phipps did uh, about a major announcement that was made on Monday morning uh, by the New Plastics Economy folks at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation around a global commitment. More than 275 brands, retailers, recyclers, governments, NGOs uh, created a shared vision on plastic pollution. Um, and it's in some ways it's it it just mirrors what's already been going on in the economy as big brands have taken on the plastics pollution issue, but this really aligned everyone in um, in, in a, towards a single goal or set of goals in a single direction, and I think it was a real turning point in what we've been seeing going on for the past year or two. Yeah, I, I you that alignment comment you just made is is really something that I walked away with because it really gets these organizations on the same page. And we know from history that when companies, well-meaning companies, try to, to address issues, but they do it in slightly different ways or they talk about things in different ways, it can kind of, I mean, it, it's absolutely important to their own organization, but it, it, it kind of sometimes impedes the, <laughs> the pace of progress because everyone's kind of got a slightly different goal. And this really helps align 
the organizations that are part of this and 275 companies that's a lot of, of companies to get involved with something um that's a huge number and and just to be clear those aren't all companies it, it's 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 a lot of there's a lot of smaller firms and ngos uh just for example we green biz group are one of the signatories uh, to support them so we're a supporting partner so the, the number of companies is, is actually smaller but there's a lot of, of, of very big companies in there, Burberry, Coca-Cola, Colgate, Danone, Diageo, Henkel, L'Oreal, Marks & Spencer, Mars, Nestle, Phillips, S.C. Johnson, you know, Target, Unilever, Walmart, and on and on. And it's a really, I think, may in fact be a critical mass. Yeah, fair, fair, fair enough. Um, but like I said, the alignment is important. I feel like when people are moving towards a common goal and a common way of talking about it and a common aspirations that it, it just does accelerate the um the progress i also was as i was reading this piece um i love that that there's this sort of disciplined review process being built in it, it said i think it was every 18 months they're going to be looking at the progress and trying to um, up the game if you will um there's this is not you know okay we're gonna announce this and it, we're going away now it this is the follow-up i think is going to be pretty rigorous um and like i said before i think it also builds on you know while it aligns and gets people sort of unified it also does build on what's already going on so it does exponentially accelerate things that are already in progress so again um it, we've been hearing so many wonderful initiatives in this space over the past, I would say, 18 months, it's really accelerated in terms of the, the, the if you will, the noise, the, the talk of this, of addressing these issues. Um, but this is like, a, for me, a turning point in, in everyone's kind of now rowing in the same direction, if you will. Yeah. And before we move on to another story, I, I want to point out one aspect of this global commitment that all these organizations made or, or endorsed, which is decoupling the plastic growth and the consumption of plastic from the consumption of finite resources. Uh, and this really, we've seen this with energy. How do you decouple energy use from economic growth? Um, we, we're seeing it now with, with carbon, uh, as, as you would expect with, if, if energy is decoupling, that carbon would as well, that the economy continues to grow or carbon emissions either grow less quickly or actually, uh, plateau or, or decrease. But uh, thinking about, this is the whole mindset that you get into when you talk about decoupling uh, the growth of, of an industry versus the growth of the resources that that industry is using. It automatically promotes reuse, recycling, composting, even moving away from plastic altogether in favor of, of, of other materials, more durable ones. So that mindset alone, and then of course, it's not just that it's less plastic, but that the plastic packaging in particular is free of hazardous chemicals. And and that's another important step because plastic has been problematic from more than just the litter and climate perspective, but obviously the human health side. And so this really looks at, at a lot of different things that need to happen with plastic. And I'm, I'm very excited about this and really excited to add that to the, to the, number of things we've seen over the past year and really recommend reading Lauren Phipps's piece about that. But let's move on to energy. And this is that time of the year where you do your quarterly clean energy deal tracker, Heather. 
Yeah, we started this earlier this year, and this is the third edition. And it was very difficult to write this one because as I was compiling the, the third quarter deals in, in early October, all of these new deals came in. Um, so I, I, uh, I had to sort of write around that a little bit because, you know, frankly, there have already been more deals announced in this quarter, in the month of October, than in all of the third quarter. So the fourth quarter edition is going to be really fun to write. But uh, to, to go back to the third quarter... Um, the thing that struck me is, is um, we continue to see new entrants. So new companies signing power purchase agreements, um, Novartis and JM Smucker uh, are two in this particular batch of, um, of deals. You also continue to see new, more straightforward contracts. So the third quarter was, was marked by some newer, uh, newer sorts of offerings and, and services, products, if you will, really pioneered by Constellation, um, who has been working with organizations to basically help them buy smaller chunks of, of projects. So, you know, they've, they've gone out and worked with developers to bundle up energy in, in solar projects or wind projects that they can resell in, in smaller batches. The total capacity added last quarter was not that huge. It was like 770 megawatts, which is substantially less than the, the second quarter. But we've already seen more than that in this past few weeks. So we're easily going to top five meg, uh, gigawatts this year. So five gigawatts of renewable solar and wind capacity being added to the grid this year in 2018. We're going to easily surpass that. And that compares with about 2.8 in 2017. So you can see that the pace is just huge. I think REBA, the, the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance, their ultimate goal is to help companies purchase up to 60 gigawatts of new renewables in the United States by 2025. Um, and right now we're standing at about 11 gigawatts. But when we hit the end of this year, we should easily be, be uh, over that. So, um, you know, I guess my only final thought on that is that I believe that uh, 2019 will see a lot more focus on the renewable thermal landscape meaning not just electricity, meaning how do companies make the loads that power their processing plants, that power their manufacturing facilities, how do they transform those loads over to renewable options? So in, off of coal and, and diesel and, and natural gas into other areas. So that's a, an area I expect a lot of activity in next year and stay tuned. Yeah. And I, and I think that one indicator of of what you're saying, this growth and the acceleration that we're we're seeing, um, or we'll expect to see in Q4 and and into 2019, is the growth of the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance itself. Uh, it was originally started by a group of NGOs, BSR and WRI and uh, Rocky Mountain Institute, and I think WWF, and now it's being spun off as its own NGO and our good friend. Green Biz and Verge ally Miranda Ballantyne, who is ex-Walmart uh, executive and former assistant secretary of the Air Force for renewables, um, is their new executive director. And we are very excited for Miranda and the team that she'll be building primarily out of D.C. Uh, around that. So uh, that can only just continue to stoke the fires of, of the growth of wind and solar. 
And I hate to go from fires right into trees. That's a terrible segue. But we ran, we ran two stories, two, count them, two stories this week on deforestation, one by Ewan Murray, the chief executive of the Sustainability Consortium, and another by a pair of uh, women, from one from Green Century Capital Management, Leslie Samuel Rich, she's the president, and Maria Latini, who is the director of something called the FAIR, F-A-I-R-R, initiative. Uh, interesting uh, perspectives, and deforestation is another thing we've been looking at uh, in terms of uh, the corporate response and, and increasing uh, proactive uh, measures taken to, to thwart and counter the clear cutting. Yeah. Um, and I think these two stories are great reminders of the fact that um, you can't just sort of an, announce something and then not follow up on it. Uh, the deforestation in Brazil has slowed, right, a according to the, these stories and, and according to the research that's out there. But Asia is a, is, is a growing issue. And a lot of that is focused is because of food production. Um, I think the, the number is 27% of all deforestation is due to large-scale production of food, including soy, beef, palm oil, and other crops. And I think that's not a surprise. But, um, you know, those lands are being used for something else now. And so you're not going to be able to replant them. Um, what you can do is, is make sure that the processes in those places are as less impactful as possible. But, you know, that's an issue and a concern for anyone in the food industry, right? So how do you, as a food company, act to, to address that? And I think one of the other reasons that these two stories struck me this week is just because of the concern over the newest administration in Brazil. Um, and I'm, I'm spacing out on his name right now, but the new leader there has said um, quite vocally that the Amazon is on his radar. And um, he thinks that it should be used for growth and um, not not of the of the forest kind uh, of the economic kind. And it's the previous efforts to really focus on mitigating deforestation in Brazil have are, are basically um, under threat. So it's it's just a reminder that you can't ever take your eye off the the goal. Um, that 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 it's constant. Um, the, two, yeah, the fight is, is, is perpetual, if you will. Yeah. And, <laughs> so. just, just like we hope trees are. Yeah, and I think one of, one of the big challenges that President-elect uh, uh, President Bolsonaro will be facing in Brazil is, is the fact that uh, world's forests can, have continued to shrink over the past 10 years, since, since 2008. We're m still losing more than a football field of forest every second, um, at least we did last year. And there is this uh, Cerrado Savannah in Brazil that has this uh, troubling rate of deforestation, as uh, Leslie Samarich and Maria Latini uh, wrote in their piece. Um, and nearly half of the Cerrado forests and the native vegetation have been cleared already in recent years. I mean, it's one. It's home to five percent of the planet's biodiversity, birthplace of many of South America's most important rivers. Half of it's been cleared, particularly for livestock industries. Demand for soy is animal feed. It's not necessarily for livestock themselves, and so there's a long way to go. Uh, you know, there's and, and what and I think the interesting challenge is how do you create the financial conditions? How can investor change the the uh, financial appeal of clearing forests to cultivate 
what they call soft commodities like palm and cattle and soy. And, and so changing the financial dynamic is, is interesting. And there's a number of measures, uh, a lot of them through the RED, R-E-D-D, uh, and RED plus approach um, that are part of uh, around the climate mitigation framework to introduce a new system to financially incentivize developing countries to prevent deforestation. And that's why investors are getting ready. And I think that's why you and Murray asked, you know, <laughs> do we have to panic yet? Uh, because this is some serious stuff going on. And but there is hope. Yeah, and the, and the other thing, I'll, I, the final thought I have on this is that, that there's also the the link now, right, with the, the realization that forests are critical for carbon removal, right? And with that focus on uh, of companies now trying to think of new opportunities um, in removing carbon in that whole mindset shift that's been sort of pushed by the IPCC report, um, that might, that sort of connection might also help organizations recalibrate their focus on this. With all the attention being paid to plastic waste and plastic recycling, it's sometimes easy to forget that there are other packaging types and other kinds of challenges, like glass, for example. It's been around for over 100 years, and recycling and waste on glass has been a, a thing for almost that long. Uh, about a fourth of all glass containers are recycled, according to the data I saw. And uh, here to talk more about that, shed some light on glass, are two podcasting friends of ours, Scott Breen and Jay Siegel, who host and created the Sustainability Defined podcast. Hey, Scott. Hey, Jay. Hey, Joel. Joel, good to be here. Scott, let's start with you. Why did you write about this, and why did you think there was a need to look into glass recycling? Well, a couple of reasons, Joel. One is, uh, Jay and I, what we do in our podcast is we define sustainability one topic and one bad joke at a time. So we did an ep a whole episode on sustainable beer, and we thought it was so fun. So that was one thing that pointed us to looking at glass recycling. But then also in my current role at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Foundation, I'm helping to lead a project that we have called Beyond 34, trying to get the country as a whole beyond its current 34% recycling rate. So looking at glass recycling was a nice intersection of the two, where we could go back to beer <laughs> and also look at this material stream that is an important part of recycling. So, Jay, how did the initial organizers of the Glass Recycling Coalition get the players from around the, the various parts of the supply chain to be part of this collaborative? For, and explain what the collaborative is. So, Joel, the group came together by getting different players within the supply chain to focus on the common ground, which was increasing glass recycling. So the GRC, as we know it today, comes together and produces all kinds of resources to help glass recycling increase throughout the industry, throughout the supply chain. What was tough and what's so monumental about what the GRC was able to do in the inception process was get all of these different parties together to agree on the larger goal before then dissecting some of the elements that feed into that that had caused some disagreement in the past. So Scott, give me some examples of some of the strategies that they want to use. So Joel, the Glass Recycling Coalition, they have a number of tools that they provide to people, and it's actually publicly available on their website. So one thing they have is a helpful tool. It, it maps MRFs, processors, and drop-offs that accept glass so people can figure out, okay, I've got this recycling system. Where is the infrastructure near me? But they also produce regular case studies. They conduct webinars, and they also provide MRF equipment grants, which is important because one of the things we talk about in the article is having a materials recovery facility that cleans glass 
is one of the best ways to produce glass that the market's going to want. So by providing those grants, they help. And they also even have a report that details MRF best practices that talks about cleaning glass and other things that MRFs can do. It always seems to be a struggle in terms of, on one hand, creating the technology to sort glass and look for markets for them, but also to get consumers to not just recycle it, but in some cases, separate it into, you know, brown, green, clear. Is that still a problem that's that the industry is trying to deal with? Yeah, totally. I mean, one of the things that we talk about in the article is that Strategic Materials, Inc., that's the country's largest glass recycling company, they said that when glass arrived on their plant 20 years ago, 98% was glass and 2% was other materials like bottle caps and paper labels. Now it's only 50% glass with things like rocks, shredded paper, even like chicken bones intermixed. So contamination is an issue. And one of the best ways to reduce contamination, at least with glass, is to have that separate uh, recovery. And uh, Jay, I'll maybe turn it to you to talk about how some of the reuse programs that have sprung up and how Ripple and some of the Conscious Container and some of these other entities are trying to do more reuse. Yeah, so Scott, you know, we talked about just now and then, of course, in the article, the the barriers that that we currently face in, in as far as increasing glass recycling, but there are some cool programs popping up. So one of our favorites was from a group called Ripple Glass, which is a GRC member in, they're based in Kansas City, that there were nearly 150 million pounds of perfectly good glass that were thrown away every year. So what they did was construct a state-of-the-art processing plant and placed dedicated glass recycling containers all throughout Kansas City and has since quadrupled the rate of glass recycling in the Kansas City metro area. So it's that availability piece. It's the willingness of producers and breweries to take it and do something with it that we're seeing really start to turn the dial on this stuff. So this is a little bit of back to the future with reuse and reusable uh, and refillable beer bottles. Is that, first of all, catching on beyond uh, some niches or is this still uh, going to take a long time to ramp? Yeah. So, Joel, we did see in 2010 Baron Brewery in Montana. They were the first brewer in Montana to take reuse. People actually return bottles to the brewer. They get a small refund. Company cleans it and reuses it. And now, just recently, a new entity sprung up called Conscious Container. They have pilots in Northern California, in Nevada, to similarly get glass containers at the brewery, bring it to Bayern Brewery for reuse and refilling. And that's a whole new effort. And then in Oregon, we saw seven brewers recently agree to use specially designed, thicker, refillable bottles so that they can be easily separated in the existing bottle deposit system. And those bottles can be reused 40 times. So you are seeing more initiatives spring up around reuse. And you're right, it is a little back to the future, but it's reduce, reuse, recycle for a reason. We'd rather reuse it than recycle it. It's more, it's better. Yeah, I met the woman from Conscious uh, Container at Verge this year, really interesting company. So, Jay, how much recycling can we get to? If we're at about a quarter now, plus or minus, uh, of glass being diverted from landfills, does the industry have a sense of how high we can go? Can we get to 100%? Joel, I think that's everyone's goal to get to 100%, but I think 50% does not seem impossible to me. I think with these different actions that different companies and organizations and breweries are starting to toss into the mix, it's not impossible to cross that halfway point. And then really it's so much of this drill comes down to accessibility and how easy it is for consumers to be able to turn this back into something meaningful. So I think if we're able to build out that system, then I think we could actually cross 50 and then hopefully go even farther than that. And to Jay's point about more than 50, one thing we say in the article is that according to the Container Recycling Institute, 
States with bottled deposit laws and incentives have an average glass container recycling rate of just over 63%. So that's one strategy that's worked to get above that threshold. Great. Well, I'll drink to that. <laughs> Scott Breen and Jay Siegel are the creators and co-hosts of Sustainability Defined. They're talking about an article that appeared recently in GreenBiz called How a Unique Industry Collaboration is Bottling a New Future for U.S. Glass Recycling. We'll put a link to that article and to Sustainability Defined on the website. Scott, Jay, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Joel. One of the things we've been doing at all of our events is inviting a group of young professionals, some of them from disadvantaged backgrounds, to attend as our guests. We call them emerging leaders. At the Verge Conference a couple weeks ago, we welcomed our latest class of emerging leaders. And here with me now to talk about that experience is Alexis Curitan, who's a Solar Core Electric Vehicle Fellow at Grid Alternatives. Hey there, Alexis. Hey, Joel. How you doing? Doing great. So tell me a little bit about why you wanted to be an emerging leader. And this was a competitive process. We get some dozens and not hundreds of, of applicants, and uh, we picked you. But why did you, why'd you want to do it? For me, the answer is simple. Since moving to Oakland, California, I've been seeking an opportunity that is both conducive to my professional and personal development. And Verge 18 seemed to be the best place uh, to be in order to do so and to grow within the area of transportation, sustainability, shared mobility, all of these things that I'm just now coming into contact with, I wanted to explore the space. So tell me a little bit about your experience there. What was the standout or how did you feel just being there? The The highlight for me is being able to find solutions in the everyday work that I'm doing at Grid Alternatives. So, for example, being able to meet Rebecca Scheel, who works with Innovation Norway, she worked with a group of individuals who allowed for EV adoption within the area to be sales tax exempt, and that is something that I'm trying to do in managing California's first clean vehicle grants program, is understanding that there are a group of individuals within the state of California who have now have an opportunity to have access to technology that historically has been out of their reach. And so I'm trying to find a way uh, to make that more accessible to them. And she is now an ally in this endeavor of mine. And it all came from the conference. You know, one of the things we've started to understand and, and learn is that you can't just take a group of, of, of young people and necessarily plop them in the conference. Some of, some of them will thrive. Some of them will, will go out and meet people and, and have some great experiences, as it sounds like you may have. But others, I think, need a little more integration. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about how to, uh, not just for our conferences, but maybe for some other conferences that are thinking about inviting in some uh, next generation of leaders and giving them a scholarship. And by the way, shout out to United Airlines that sponsored this year's class of uh, emerging leaders. But integrating them takes a little bit of work, don't you think? Absolutely. I would say one, what's allowed for me to grow in this space and many of my peers is putting not only the opportunity to attend the conferences, but actually placing responsibility on them and saying, well, beyond being able to being able to attend these sessions, find a session where you would want to volunteer. So it puts them in a position to where they have to actively engage and allow for the leadership skills that many individuals within this 
millennial generation have allowed for us to show them off and allow for us to see like, wow, I actually can be a part of this community. I actually can be a part of the group that's creating a solution to climate change and so on and so forth. So did you do that at Verge? Oh, very. Like I like initiative is my middle name. Uh, Joe, and so I very much took it upon myself within the first session, the circular economy session, very much said, how can I help with setup? How can I help with leading this discussion? And even though that was very much ambitious and even understanding that some of the topic uh, was new to me, it, it's having the wherewithal and the want to participate and wanting to help. So it came to the point of just asking, does anybody need anything? Any follow-up questions, collecting cards, whatever the case may be. Was there anything that you learned at Verge that was sort of a, a surprise that you didn't expect to be learning or that did you maybe change the way you thought about something else? I mean, I hate to keep referencing the circular economy, but that was it. Like understanding that the work that I'm doing with the electrification, transportation, that's only one small piece to the bigger puzzle. And it, it just seemed that that is what's driving innovation. That is what's driving this conversation about sustainability. It's the circular economy and how do we all fit within that that sphere of influence. That's great. No, I mean, I think it's really important. And one of the things that is, I think, kind of the hallmark of Verge is connecting the dots among various technologies and frameworks and initiatives. And if, if you came away from that, seeing the connectivity between electric vehicles and the circular economy, I mean, that's a success as far as I'm concerned. So what would you recommend to other young people, number one, in terms of getting the most out of these events? You said initiative is one thing. Uh, and also, what would you recommend for companies who want to engage with people like you, the young, up-and-coming, next generation of sustainability leaders? Well, number one, starting with the first part of the question, I would say strategize. Like That was the biggest thing for me. When I was looking through the Verge 18 app, and I was going through, okay, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, who are the individuals within the transportation space that are going to be speaking at either the main service panel or within the individual sessions? And how do they align with the work I'm doing with GRID or work that I've done in the past? And I would make sure that in some way, shape, or form, like we were able to rub shoulders or I sent them an invite or I said, hey, let's grab coffee or hey, let's grab lunch. And so just showing that initiative and being strategic and intentional with everything that you're doing, every conversation you're having, that's number one. So advice for the younger millennial generation, but for the individuals that came before us, how to engage us and get us into these conversations, I would say that is the challenge. And that, that is what I've been thinking about this entire time. I, I speak very highly of my experience at Verge 18, but I understand that not everything is perfect. And at this moment, I'm thinking... I think the conversation needs to be geared towards speaking about historically black colleges and universities. What are these entities that are coming to these conferences? What do they need? And being able to communicate that clearly with these type of universities when they're producing these scholars, the what, what's in the curriculum? Like if we're talking about the circular economy, if we're talking about the electrification of transportation, what are we teaching our kids that come that come from these quote unquote disadvantaged communities, how can we allow for them to be the change agents and the leaders within their community to then be able to come to these type of conferences and bring the solutions there and take it back to their homes? 
I think it all circles back to strategy. How can we be more strategic, regardless of race, regardless of social economic status, to be able to come up with these solutions? So more, more conversations, hosting these type of conferences, maybe at a disadvantaged location. So instead of having it based in Oakland, you know, not being from this area, I don't want to spitball. But I mean, for example, we could talk about Richmond, maybe hosting some type of event there outside of just doing an install, like actually having these big names, for example, like Michael Raglan, who's the director of sustainability at Walmart, or having these type of individuals coming to these communities. We have to meet them where they're at instead of having them meet us where the stadium or where the infrastructure is being built, in short. That's great advice. And thank you so much for being part of the Verge community. Look forward to seeing you at more Verge events. Alexis Curitan, middle name initiative, is a solar core electric vehicle fellow at Grid Alternatives. Thanks, Alexis. Thanks for having me, Joe. As you heard at the top of the show, this week's podcast is sponsored by the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, or NCBA, a contractor to the beef checkoff. And here with me now is Dr. Sarah Place, Senior Director, Sustainable Beef Production Research at NCBA. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Joe. So, Sarah, coming up in the middle of November is the Sustainable Ag Summit in Denver, where a lot of folks are going to be talking about the sustainability of a range of food and ag products. When we get into these conversations, we very quickly get into a bit of nostalgia. Folks who say that we need to raise animals and food the way we did a couple of generations ago, you're in the middle of food production. Is that a realistic way to think about feeding 9 or 10 billion mouths in the coming decades. Yeah, so that is, as you mentioned, that nostalgia is a powerful feeling when it comes to sustainability. But realistically, when we look at the the math of the situation, we are going to have to change and continue to do essentially more with less to actually feed over 9.8 billion people by the year 2050. Um, Just in the last few decades alone, we've added 3 billion people on planet Earth. And so we, we always had to be continuously changing how we do things to make sure that we can nourish everyone without eating the planet essentially. So we're talking about increasing productivity. What does productivity in agriculture mean exactly? And how does it relate to sustainability? Yeah, so productivity really is about doing more with less or essentially producing more outputs. And it could be beef per live animal, or it could be things like corn per per acre. And that is a, a key driver for sustainability, because it means we use fewer natural resources Uh, be it land or water or soil resources for every calorie and every unit of protein that we're producing for people in our food supply. So give me an example of of what that looks like, because you're obviously producing uh, a cow as a cow and you can't, you can make, I guess, a bigger cow, but you've got, you've got to do that with the same or fewer resources. Give me an example of how that's happening with, say, water. Sure. So um, when we think about changes over time for, for beef specifically, a lot of changes have taken place that have been driven by, um, as you mentioned, one is getting larger animals. So, for example, compared to 1975, today we're able to produce the same amount of beef in the United States with a third fewer cattle. Um, So that has implications for water, as you just mentioned, in terms of reducing the amount of feed resources. And that's actually where most of our water use is in the beef industry, is the amount of feed that goes to cattle and um, using irrigated feed resources. So if we're able to produce more beef with fewer cattle and require less feed, 
then that means the total amount of water that's demanded by the beef industry goes down as well. And so there's lots of examples there. And as I just highlighted, there's lots of synergies between crop agriculture and animal agriculture in this case. When either improve, there's co-benefits for, for the other segment of agriculture. So cows are raised and beef is produced in pretty much every country of the world. And I know you're the U.S. Beef Association, but how does raising beef in the United States compare to the rest of the world? Yeah, so that that metric, if you will, that I just mentioned in terms of the amount of beef that we produce per live animal. And when I say that, if people aren't familiar with the beef industry, I mean, that includes all the mother cows and uh, the bulls and um, what we call replacement heifers, young animals that will be replacing the other cows, all those animals together. We're, we're able to produce more beef per live animal in the United States, and that means fewer methane emissions, fewer natural resources, and that translates into lower carbon footprints for U.S. beef. So, for example, a study that came out in the Proceedings of the National Academies of Sciences found that in the United States and other parts of Western Europe, our carbon footprint for beef is 10 to 50 times lower than it is in other parts of the world. Um, and again, that really comes down to how many animals are actually required to produce beef. Another one of the issues we hear a lot about these days is food waste. What's going on in the beef industry to optimize production and reduce, if not eliminate, waste? Yeah, so that is a pressing issue. Um, when we have conducted a life cycle assessment of the U.S. beef industry, that was kind of one of the surprising results was food waste really stands out in terms of its impact on the U.S. beef industry. So, for example, if we could cut beef waste in half, we would improve the sustainability of beef 10% overnight. Uh, which is pretty dramatic, but it's similar for a lot of our food items. So in the United States, we waste up to 40% of edible food. And for beef, it's around 20% of edible beef. Um, but based on the life cycle of U.S. beef, that's a couple years worth of resources going into a steak on someone's plate that they may then throw away. So in terms of what we're doing about it, um, we've had some initiatives in terms of a food waste challenge to try to get people to think about planning their meals better. And we do a lot of different recipe work and trying to get people to repurpose leftovers if they have them. And the other way that this is kind of related to the beef industry is we have lots of food waste or potential waste items that come from uh, crops and crop processing for human food. So for example, um, when people eat sugar that's from sugar beets. Uh, there's lots of leftovers from those beets, could be the pulp of the beets or the tops, that then actually get fed back to cattle or other livestock. So there's a great example there of how really cattle help us from a standpoint of recycling waste products from other uh, potential food waste streams in the food system. Well, I guess animals are the natural recyclers. Sarah Place, Senior Director of Sustainable Beef Production Research at NCBA, a contractor to the Beef Checkoff. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast for a Halloween week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find out more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned in this episode. And while you're there, look for the link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. You can always hit us up by email, 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. Heather and I will be back next week in the Big Apple for another edition of GreenBiz 350. Until then, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening.
This episode is sponsored by the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, a contractor to the Beef Checkoff. For more information, please visit beefitswhatsfordinner.com.